Hey everybody, welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Mark, I'm here with Trevor. How are you feeling today, Trevor? Uh, I feel pretty good, but I also feel like I'm a whole day late for some reason. How are you feeling? <laughs> I feel right on time. I feel like um, a 40-page footnote. Ooh. A 40? Is that some sort of uh, allusion to the book that you're covering today? <laughs> mm, not, re- not really. <laughs> you're yeah, in it a- took me a whole day. Take you a whole you're, day to read. You're in a David Foster Wallace mood. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so this is episode 33, but Mark, you told me to contemplate a particular subject before going into today's intro. Do you want to tell me a little bit more about it? Yeah, yeah. Today, I just, uh, instead of a game or whatever, I wanted to just see if we could talk about audiobooks. Like, uh, first of all, are you are you a fan of audiobooks, of that medium? You know what? The, an audio book, an audio book has never clicked for me. I don't think I've ever done a full audio book all the way through. Okay. Have you? I have done audio books on like YouTube of shorter, shorter stuff. Hmm. Because Something I feel I don't like want to give away because I'll probably cover it in the future. But. <laughs> I feel like with an audiobook, uh, it doesn't fully. I guess I like. I, I guess I would target it for like a particular genre or type of book. Like I'd be willing to read something or have read to me like all of Harry Potter or something. But anything that goes beyond a book that's purely entertainment value, I'm just probably going to be frustrated by like not being able to contemplate it at my own pace, I guess I would say. Yeah. Like, you know, if I'm reading something that I would like to, you know, that feeling of like when you pause in between chapters or like after you read something, you sit and think about it. But with an audiobook, it's just like trudging forward, you know, <laughs> or like a, yeah, a dictionary or anything, any kind of pause. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Yeah. So you have tried you've tried some though before, right? Like what 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 was it yeah. about it? Like uh what else? It was it just someone reading or was it like something that had some more like theatrics to it? Because I know you mentioned before like you didn't like when uh or you'd heard once where some dude was trying to do like a, a woman character's voice. Yeah, and, like, see that's another voice. that's another humongous factor that Yeah. I think it's almost like, the, you know, there's like the classic like author to reader relationship, which is different with every author and how they handle it. But then the audiobook kind of introduces that third person and you can either intensely agree with their performance or you can intensely disagree. And I think what you're what you're referencing is I've heard the audiobooks of the Wheel of Time series which is uh, an epic fantasy series that is soon to come out with its own show on Amazon. Um, but yeah, there are readings of it where it's like, you know, an older male actor. And then during the like the female parts, he'll kind of be like, and then she said this. Yeah. And it's just sort of like cringy and awful. Yeah. Also, like just weird pronunciations that you don't agree with, maybe. Uh, like different words that you pronounce differently, especially in a fantasy genre, you have like a lot of vocabulary that you make up. Oh, yourself. it's got to stay in your head. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I could see that. So maybe that's what broke it for me. Like I haven't really 
tried anything. I don't think I've ever really tried anything outside of, like I said, like the entertainment genre, like a like a book that's just an entertainment. I think I've heard some of the Harry Potters. Okay, yeah, my my niece is crazy about those. Uh, like they, you know, have them in the car and stuff. Yeah, how old is she, I, by the way? How old is your niece? Ten. Because oh, okay, because I'm like I'm yeah. fully ready for my niece and nephew to get into like i'm really like intensely excited for them to hit like harry potter age and you know (laughs) all the different ages of all the different books but i have like a long way it's kind of annoying when they're so little because my niece right now is four and it's like i have to wait so long (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah you're not there yet um yeah yeah my niece is fully obsessed nice but um so anyways, about yeah, audiobooks like I'm not I'm not that big into them either, but I mean, I also haven't tried too much. Like I have noticed there's some on like the uh the Google Podcast app has audiobooks like disguised as podcasts where it's like mm-hmm. every they're divided into episodes that are just, you know, an hour long or whatever. Uh so I might try that out. That'd be kind of cool cuz I like the, you know, podcast medium. It's like an hour is you know, digest- right. easily digestible and all that but so anyways i i did some research on some audiobook stuff to see what other combinations or you know what else is out there like have some of the the famous voices that you you know uh have they ever like applied their talents to the audiobook medium and so i found a few interesting things i thought we could discuss uh so i have a big list here First off, apparently there's a version of, you know, the book, uh, it was a movie to uh, World War Z. Yep. The one a couple of years ago. So that, the audiobook for that was narrated by the full cast of the movie. So it just like, oh. the voices line up perfectly and everything. And, That's you know, interesting. That, I just thought, yeah, that was just a great idea. Because um, isn't that book cool. also, isn't that book also like, I think the structure of that book is like a found narrative, right? It's like it's through like diary entries or letters or something like that, or voicemails or something like that. I I'm think. not sure, but yeah, that would be cool if it, if that would fit perfectly, if it was, if there's like a lot of that, uh, kind of dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, but that'd be really cool if it could be done for other adaptations. You yeah. Know? I would totally, I would so be in for an audiobook That's everyone from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> that'd yeah, be one expensive like, audiobook. <laughs> Um, yeah, that would be sick. There's something else I had here. Um, Angela's Ashes by Frank McCourt. That was narrated by the author himself. So, you know, you're getting it straight from right. the source. Like, yeah, the, that, I think because the... you asked me, you asked me before the podcast to think of my fantasy. I'm getting to that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Continue. Continue. Because yeah. I think most of mine would have to do with that. Like I want the author to read their own thing. Yeah. That's that's a great kind of um, – that's the best way to do it. You know, you get all those subtle things like the tone and enunciation and like you said, the pronouncing all the all the words that they're inventing or terms, you know, exactly as they were intended. Mm-hmm. And, um, and another thing I noticed, like there's a ton of – celebrity memoirs that are read by the author right you know, that's like totally in line um like tina fey's memoir bossy pants oh yeah she read she it did, herself. she narrated it yeah i actually i actually have a unique story about that because i have a 
I have a former colleague, uh, one of my managers was saying that he didn't like the the written bossy pants, but when he had the audiobook read to him by Tina Fey, he said it was like way better. So that's like <laughs> an interesting like maybe that's something worth investigating. Like if you don't like a particular book, but it's something that you wanted to get into, trying it like in a different in Try a different the audio. form. Yeah. Yeah. I think with her you're just you're used to hearing her voice too. Right. Yeah. So well obviously she's maybe. gonna be like a practiced <laughs> sort of Yeah. She yeah. got the delivery. And um so there's there's a lot of like surprising celebrity readers that I came across too, just for um for like classics or, or other other books like um uh the actress Claire Danes, she did the audiobook for The Handmaid's Tale. Hmm. She's not she's not on the show, I don't think, but she, she did the the audiobook. Mm. Uh Sissy Spacek, aka Carrie. She right. she recorded a version of uh To Kill a Mockingbird. Harper Whoa, Lee. that's cool. Uh Jake Gyllenhaal read The Great Gatsby. You can find that out there. Whoa, uh, that's John pretty Mal- interesting. Yeah. I, I I didn't know about any of these. Um John Malkovich, she recorded uh Breakfast of Champions by Vonnegut. Whoa, that's cool. I yeah, mean, I feel almost bad that my interest in audiobooks is being piqued only by like celebrity. Yeah. <laughs> that's sort of like that's yeah. like kind of negative, but <laughs> I mean, some sometimes the voice, like if it's a voice that you know is either what entertaining or soothing or powerful or unique, like it can make or break this the, the uh, contents of the story. I feel I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, you talked about Harry Potter. The there's a there's a few versions of that, but um, the British comedian actor Stephen Fry, he recorded a. I guess that's the quintessential Harry. Yeah, Potter. I think that I think I hear or I've heard of, about that before. Because in the UK, Stephen Fry is a very famous name, and I think I have heard of that he recorded the the whole the whole thing. Yeah, he's he's done a bunch of stuff. He did Sherlock. He did some of the Sherlock Holmes novels too. He did Hitchhiker's Guide nice his own book of course um oh check this one this one was really random but cool and probably only interesting to you and me uh gulliver gulliver's travels recorded by david hyde pierce aka niles from frazier whoa doesn't that sound amazing yeah i do now i'm now i'm ready for my first dip into the (laughs) audiobooks i just want to hear niles read a book to me can't you hear that yeah and they actually um they titled it gulliver's I don't know why I can't pronounce this. Gulliver's Travels, uh, a signature performance by David Hyde Pierce. That's what it says on the cover. Nice. A signature performance. So they're guaranteeing it's good. (laughs) Uh, Another one I found was a book that I covered on the podcast, To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. That was narrated by Nicole Kidman. Oh, interesting. I really got to wonder how that even sounds because the narration in that book jumps just all over the place. And it's like that. Mm-hmm. I talked about it as like the stream of consciousness. Well, another cool thing about this is like, it's, it's almost like a second layer to what we've talked about before about, you know, like celebrity readers where it's sort of like, yeah. now, you know, that, you know, if you are, if you're ever at a cocktail event with uh, Nicole Kidman, you can talk about it like she's read to the lighthouse cover to cover. Obviously, there's proof. Yeah. 
Um, oh, and yeah. probably more than cover to cover because when you're doing an audiobook, they definitely do multiple takes. You don't get everything in the first go. Yeah. And, um, you know, if you're, I, I, there's probably some study that if you, if you read out loud, you retain more of the information probably. Yeah, maybe, or maybe less. I, I, I could maybe mm. see that you're not, you're concentrating more on your performance than on the text. Okay. Yeah. Maybe that'll be a, another uh, topic to look into for an intro. Um, so I did, I did a search on audible to see what else was kind of out there. Just like throwing random stuff into the uh, search bar and I'm just trying to think of like the great voices out there that you'd want to record something. So one of the first ones you, or most people might think of is Samuel L. Jackson. And mm -hmm. he, he, he has recorded some some book some audiobooks and one of them was the uh you might might have seen this that sarcastic children's book Go the Fuck to Sleep. Yeah, David Sedaris. It's like right? super Yeah. Uh no, Adam Adam Mansbach. Oh why did I think Sedaris did that? I don't know, whatever. I think he, he's done something like that, but here But yeah, go the fuck to sleep. Oh, so Samuel the L. Jackson has made his last leap. Hell no, you can't go to the bathroom. You know where you can go? The fuck to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if people are actually playing that for their kids or just uh, laughing at it. I don't know. <laughs> there's some. There's somebody out there who's doing it. Unfortunately, it's it's six minutes long. Um, another one uh, came to mind for me was uh, Alan Rickman. He mm. has a really cool voice. And you know, good in every movie he was in, and he recorded, he he recorded at least the audiobook for the Return Return of the Native by Thomas Hardy. Whoa, that's, that's one awesome. I'm definitely interested in. And I don't know if this is part of some bigger collection, but there's a clip on YouTube that uh, you'll like. It's a minute and a half long of Alan Rickman reading uh, something from Proust. So, nice. Uh, That's all I'm gonna play. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was that seems pretty awesome. I'm definitely, you know, send me the link to that because I'm definitely interested. Yeah, um, I don't know if he did the whole book, but that that would be cool. And I think he's there's clips on YouTube of him reading like Shakespeare as well and other stuff. Oh, the like whole a whole audio. That's like something. See, that's like the the like the classic example of you know. You know, I hate to bring it up over and over and over, just talking about Proust all the, all the time. But that to me is the classic example. Like you wouldn't be like, maybe you would read like do the audiobook of Proust after you've already read the text to get like a new perspective or something. But it's just way too dense. Like as it as like it went by, it would start to make no sense if you were. Yeah having Proust just like read to you, I feel like it would be really hard to concentrate, especially like, you know, famously some of the the sentences are like 10 pages long. Oh yeah. It'd so be it's like five, five minutes. Yeah. Five like minutes. sub comma after sub comma, you would be listening to something <laughs> like one, like the idea, like the expression of one emotion over like 15 minutes. And you'd be like, what the hell is happening? <laughs> Okay, but yeah, maybe I'm um, wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, if Alan Rickman's gonna read me Proust, then maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, try that clip out. See if a minute and a half <laughs> can hold your attention. Then 
can search for the whole thing. Um, so yeah, I was just thinking about other great voices. Um, you know, be cool like a James Earl Jones or Tom Hanks or something. Re- read a audiobook. But so I asked you. I didn't tell you we were going to talk about this, but I, I asked you one question just to ponder, which was, you know, what would be your dream casting for like a book that you love? Like, you know, pick a book and then have whoever you want your wildest dreams or whatever to narrate it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not, not a crazy thought experiment, but uh, so, so what were you thinking of? Well, it's interesting because, it kind of goes in the same vein of what you what you went through with we started talking about um you know authors that would read their own books i know that there's a clip again on youtube there's a clip of um of the author of on the road he reads like Kerouac yeah Kerouac like reads just like a section of on the road and it's really cool i mean it's like almost for that like 30 second clip that's on youtube it makes the book like that much more interesting so i think definitely there's i think like all of the things that immediately came to mind again it was like what if you had like a recording of like Proust reading the whole thing i also think it would be interesting if you had a recording because uh the translator of the main english translator of Proust is this guy scott moncrief and he famously kind of almost added his own flavor to Proust, which a lot of people sort of disagree with, but I don't fully disagree with it because I've compared it to other translations and I don't think it's, you know, horrible or anything. But I think it would be funny if there was a recording of Proust trying to read his own work translated into English because he would probably, like, intensely disagree with some of the things that Moncrief did. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) So he might be, like, reading in disgust. Uh, I I don't even <laughs> think he even spoke English, so that would be like a yeah. fantasy and possibility. I think that it would be really cool to have recordings of like Dostoevsky reading his own work because I think that you would like kind of it would probably like imbue like the seriousness that's behind it, you know? Yeah. Um, you were t- you were talking about Kerouac, wasn't? Um... Isn't there like a live audiobook that takes place every year? Yeah, <laughs> it's that, totally like... crazy. Someone someone contacted <laughs> us. Someone contacted us on Twitter, and I don't know if we mentioned it on the podcast before, but where where he's from, where Kerouac is from, it's somewhere in Massachusetts. And every year they do a full live reading of On the Road where they have two podiums, like one next to the other, and it takes 10 hours and everyone (laughs) takes a turn and each podium, like it goes back and forth, like taking a turn and people come up to like, okay, I'm on the right podium or the left podium and they read for like however long they can, they can take it. The live audiobook. Yeah. I bet you there's recordings of that somewhere, which would be really cool. Yeah. So, um, so we're talking so about this dreamcasting thing. I came up with uh, how about having Mel Blanc, you know, the man of a thousand voices, yes. like doing all the characters for, I couldn't pick a book for this one, but pretty much any book with a lot of characters, he would be the man. Like he was so ridiculous. He did all the, all the Looney Tunes voices, like right. just one guy doing, you know, 40 different characters or whatever. Yeah, well, you know, Pynchon has a lot of characters. Maybe you could do a Pynchon book. Yeah, that would be great. Like a super cartoonish 
like it would match their names and yeah it would be like that like there's there's a lot we've talked about you and i have talked about this before but there i think that there is a lot of pension that would almost be like animated like people take him too seriously you know yeah whereas like some of the books would actually probably be really good as like animated films with wacky characters and stuff yeah just dumb dummy logic kind of yeah. stuff but yeah that would yeah. be actually i would take that i would take a live or not a live i don't know what i'm talking about. um i would take an audio book of like gravity's rainbow or something and just replace each character with one of the looney tunes characters just like sloth rob is is bugs bunny's voice like that yeah would <laughs> <laughs> yeah that would be listen really to that. Good. yeah and uh, and um does were you thinking of any other ones um i guess those were my main the main ones were you know like proust reading in english um i think that it would be i actually have like an, another like tangential story to this which is when you were talking about like celebrities reading their own books you know like tina fey doing bossy pants and stuff like that i, yeah. I this will be a plug for a, a different type of show there's actually a comedy show in new york city that's really good that I went to a reading of once and it's, it's really awesome. There's like this, um, there's a, tr there's a show that happens every, like a few times every year. I don't know if people can find it. I, if I can find it online, I'll link to it on our Twitter, but there is a, um, there's a show called celebrity autobiography and what you, there's a whole subgenre of celebrity autobiographies by people who you really wouldn't care to hear their autobiography. You know, like there's like a book out there that's like, like Rob Schneider. Yeah. Like Rob Schneider, or like, or like Miley Cyrus's autobiography or just, you know, like basically not that I'm saying that their life experience doesn't matter, but there's also like, I think a lot of these things are like pen, like ghost written and stuff like that. And what they yeah. do at celebrity autobiography is that they have comedians who aren't the people who wrote the book read from it. So it'll be like this, you know, like the story of um, who's the guy, uh, Ricky Martin, you know, living La Vida Loca. Yeah. He like has like an autobiography and it will, and they'll have like another comedian read like the most ridiculous section of it like the most and it's so funny so that's it's something that concept. yeah that's something like a concept that i could say is like almost audiobookish, but definitely works really well nice what were some of your what fantasy ones i thought of i thought of one more good really good one which would be like a western read by um uh, you know sam elliott the actor yeah yeah he like you know just super low like cowboy voice like like a western read by him just you know grumbling his way through it and he's like mm -hmm. uh and he was actually maybe, in tombstone he was in me. tombstone so it'd be cool yeah. if you read warlock oh yeah first book i covered because that's like kind of based on tombstone yeah or maybe uh what was i uh what book was i gonna say it just flew right out of my head shit a western <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Cormac McCarthy. Like if he read a Cormac McCarthy book. Yeah. You know, some some other someone else with a distinct voice like uh I'm surprised that we haven't mentioned Morgan Freeman yet. I think that would be everyone's like go-to smooth voice. Uh, I I had him on my list and I forgot to look up. I'm certain that he's read something. Oh, he definitely has. He's done like yeah. I think he's also done like religious readings if I'm not mistaken. 
I know that he did a produce a documentary about like the existence of God and stuff like that. And he also okay. famously yeah, I mean, pl- he also played God in the Jim Carrey movie. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever that movie's called. Yeah. So, um yeah, I just thought we could talk about audiobooks and just to put a uh <laughs> an end here. This this segment was not brought to you by Audible because we are no. not popular <laughs> enough to have ads. No. Not popular enough to have any ads yet. So no, thanks. not yet. So <laughs> completely ad-free experience until we uh, get popular enough to be money-grubbing ad readers. Yeah, get your audiobooks wherever you want. Yes, <laughs> including <laughs> YouTube, which we just talked about. Yeah. Awesome. Well, it's episode 33, which means that uh, it's Mark's turn to go first. Oh, shit. Um, I was not paying attention. So, yeah. <laughs> this week so so in my in my outline that i write up each week for the show i've started labeling my like introductory section as the tangent of the week okay um and this <laughs> this week my tangent is it's another question who who was your favorite older relative oh wow that's that's a pretty easy one for me um, because it's sort of inspirational, but at the same time, like the answer just is a, a simple, it would be clear to my life all the way through. A lot of people who know me well would know that I'm pretty close to my grandfather who is currently, he, literally I was in Connecticut a few weeks ago celebrating his 97th birthday. So, uh, yeah, nice. that would be my grandfather who is still, uh, going strong and is 97. So Henry Braley awesome. would be the, <laughs> the the proper term. Born in 1922, no. which is mind-blowing. Damn. <laughs> How about your uh, zaniest older relative? You don't have to name names here or reveal anything. You know, you... <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't have to name names, <laughs> but I actually, I actually can because... Um, They're cool. This is actually... Well, this is actually someone who unfortunately recently passed away, but a big tribute out on the podcast airwaves to my grandmother's cousin, who was a woman named Aunt Anne, but she would call herself Uncle Anne, even though she was a woman. And uh, she was a painter. And actually, she was she was totally zany because she would never stop talking like one of those like there's older people who don't really talk too much my grandpa being one of them but Anne would just never stop talking and but her life was pretty epic she worked as a cartographer for national geographic she worked like yeah it was weird it's like she wasn't like going on safaris i think she was more like administrative but she was like working on like maps and stuff like that and she had some pretty zany stories it's kind of hard to tell like what was true and what was not true. I think once she told me she met Amelia Earhart. Damn. Okay. <laughs> but you know, it's like, she's one of those people that talks so In much that like, well, yeah, I don't know. Like she talks so much <laughs> that it all like zips by and you're like, and she's just not talking, talking, talking. And it's like, I think I heard in there that she met Amelia Earhart, but I'm not hundred percent sure. <laughs> also Winston Churchill. I think she said that once, whatever. Damn. So, so to follow up on that, as a, as a kid, did you ever do like sleepovers with them or maybe spend time with them without your parents? Never on no. Anne, but okay. my grandfather, yeah. I mean, he was like taking care okay. of me and my sister just like babysitting or whatever. 
yeah, you know, it's a different experience, right? Like maybe they're more lenient or if you could imagine if you had a sleepover at uh, Uncle Uncle Ann's, like it'd be super lenient or maybe they let you stay up past your bedtime or they just have mm-hmm. a different sort of lifestyle for better or worse, you know? Maybe they uh, maybe they let you shoot a gun or maybe they, you have <laughs> breakfast for dinner. <laughs> so the thought experiment here is, you know, what if you take that experience and say, what if that what that was your life you know what if they were your parents Mm -hmm. who would you be like would that be good for you you know does it what does it change about you if if you were raised by like your grandfather instead of your parents right it probably changes you pretty fundamentally right oh yeah yeah and so um i i felt the same way like i was just thinking about (laughs) my own experience of just um you know, sleepovers and stuff like that with different uh, cousins or aunts and uncles and stuff. And, you know, that was one of the main questions that was posed by the book that I read this week. Um, And that's just what I'm taking away from it. I looked at what other people thought about it and it wasn't quite the same, but this book, and uh, I say I read it this week, but I would say I read it more than once just based on how many times I had retraced my steps just due to how good some of the prose was, um, definitely rewinded a lot, and it really kind of demanded that you slow things down, and that's like a that's a sentiment I saw a lot when I looked up reviews of it. And so I'm talking about the novel Housekeeping by Marilyn Robinson. Okay, never it's heard of it in my life. And yeah, and, and if you haven't heard of this, you you've probably seen her other novel Gilead around the bookstore or on other people's shelves or okay yeah word of mouth you seen that one yeah definitely a bookshelf book yeah that one's super famous because it won you know it won the 2005 pulitzer for fiction and just as an aside i've had gilead on my bookshelf for a long time i bought it maybe 10 years ago at goodwill or something and i have not read it and originally I'll give you a guess as to why I bought this book. Gilead? Yeah, just by the name. I feel like I should know this about you, but I'm blanking. <laughs> no, you're going to get it in a second. Um, so Gilead was the name of the city that Roland Deschain was from in Dark Tower. That was his, uh... like, his, his birthplace or whatever. But you know... I bought the book based on that, and that's not what it's about. <laughs> like somehow, <laughs> somehow, so I never got around to reading it. The world's <laughs> biggest Dark Tower fan wins a Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't fan fiction. Um, so Marilyn Robinson, though she was she was born in 1943 in Idaho. She went to Brown University, got her doctorate at the University of Washington. And one of the things about her is that she taught at the famous Iowa writers workshop. Have you heard of that? It's like, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's like what college it's. Yeah. There's, there's like legend. Like that's the funny thing about Iowa, right? Is like, I think in Americana consciousness, it's like, Oh, Iowa's like the middle of nowhere, but then it's super, super famous for like a writing Mecca. Yeah. There's a lot, there's like a lot of writing energy out there. And I think there's, I think I also heard like a, either like a stand up comedian or someone mention about how it's like, 
it's strange around there because it's like a co- there are like all these college towns where it's like there's the the Iowa like writers residence, but it's also like a huge football yep. town. So it's yeah, like yeah. it's like jocks like running around like chugging beers and then people you know like clutching their David Foster Wallace. <laughs> yeah, it's like a writer's retreat. Mm-hmm. Um, so so she taught at this writer's workshop starting in 1991, which was really um, wild to me because the book that I read this week came out in 1980, and you know if I was in that class at that time or, you know, early 90s or whatever, and had read that book, like, before, or, you know, read it during the workshop, because I'm like, oh, my teacher is an author, I would be like, wow, I, I really need to listen to her every word, you know? Like, it would, it's just really impressive writing, and um, it would be like, you know, it would be like finding out if your gym teacher medaled at the Olympics or something, like, at yeah. the day before Olympics. You'd be like, whoa, okay, I need to, like, step up my game or really, it'd make you want to impress her, and then it would, um, it's just really crazy. And now I, I'm after, after this, I kind of want to see, see if there's any, uh, stories or articles about people who have, who were taught by her at this, uh, workshop. So housekeeping, it was this, this book itself was a finalist for the Pulitzer back in 1982, but she eventually won it, you know, 25 years later. Mm-hmm. And here's a really interesting factoid which you kind of uh, talked about a few minutes, a minute ago or whatever. She was a, she was a visiting professor at the university of Kent Amherst. So she actually taught uh, David Foster Wallace at some point in time. Oh, wow. Okay. And a bunch of other um, writers, you know, so just an interesting connection Uh, onto the book itself though. Housekeeping. It's a super, character-driven work and it's about two sisters in a small town who you know they first first they lose their mother at a very young age so then their grandmother steps in to raise them but then they lose their grandmother as well so her the grandmother's sisters step in you know uh the great the great aunts to the to these girls and then they're finally um they and then you know they leave and they finally end up under the care of their free-spirited aunt Hmm. and it's just like i talked about in the intro like that sort of change in lifestyle in um supervision and and all sorts of that stuff it's it's gonna affect you really deeply and it's gonna affect each child differently too and that's kind of what this book was about to me so that didn't really make any sense to follow no but like Um, so i guess my question would be is was that like what you just said? Is that like a plot summary of the whole book, or is it like that just happens within like the first ten pages, and then we land with the zany aunt, or is it like over uh, like the whole book? That's kind of the skeleton of the whole book. Oh, okay, that's interesting. But let me just. So it's uh, like going through all these different like parental styles and how it like changes them. Yeah. So to write back the summary, let me just read the first few t- few sentences of the book really quick just so you see that I'm not like spoiling everything. Mm-hmm. My name is Ruth. I grew up with my younger sister Lucille under the care of my grandmother, Mrs. Sylvia Foster, and when she died, of her sisters-in-law, Mrs. Lily and Nona Foster, and when they fled, of her daughter, Mrs. Sylvia Fisher. Through all these generations of elders, we lived in one house, my grandmother's house, built for her by her husband. 
So, yeah, the structure. So it's sort of like the kid. It's like right it's like it's like the kids come with the house. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so, um, yeah, their their real mother is really not around very much in the book. It's really more of her presence, I guess, and the children kind of seeing a little bit of their mother in her relatives. And that's probably what you get, like, when you're talking about your, you know, grandfather and stuff. Like, there's some, some you know, similarities there, right, with your parents, but it's, like, definitely different. Um, but I think I, I probably enjoyed the part with their grandmother the most. Um, she was the definitely most, like, competent. Uh, so, you know, check out this. I want you to uh, read this paragraph, which I think I backtracked and read probably three times when I started it, but now I'll just read it for a fourth time. And now, to comfort herself, my grandmother would not reflect on the unkindness of her children or of children in general. She had noticed many times always that her girls' faces were soft and serious and inward and still when she looked at them, just as they had been when they were small children, just as they were now when they were sleeping. If a friend was in the room, her daughters would watch his face or her face intently and tease or soothe or banter, and any one of them could gauge and respond to the finest changes of expression or tone, even Sylvie, if she chose to. But it did not occur to them to suit their words and manners to her looks, and she did not want them to. In fact, she was often prompted or restrained by the thought of saving this unconsciousness of theirs. She was then a magisterial woman, not only because of her height and her large, sharp face, not only because of her upbringing, but also because it suited her purpose, to be what she seemed to be so that her children would never be startled or surprised, and to take on all the postures and vestments of matron, to differentiate her life from theirs, so that her children would never feel intruded upon. Her love for them was utter and equal, her government of them generous and absolute. She was constant as daylight, and she would be unremarked as daylight, just to watch the calm inwardness of their faces. What was it like? One evening, one summer, she went out to the garden. The earth in the rose was light and soft as cinders, pale clay yellow, and the trees and plants were ripe, ordinary green and full of comfortable rustlings. And above the pale earth and bright trees, the sky was the dark blue of ashes. As she knelt in the rose, she heard the hollyhocks thump against the shed wall. She felt the hair lifted from her neck by a swift watery wind, and she saw the trees fill with wind and heard their trunks creak like masts. She burrowed her hand under a potato plant and felt gingerly for the new potatoes in their dry net of roots, smooth as eggs. She put them in her apron and walked back to the house, thinking, What have I seen? What have I seen? The earth and the sky and the garden, not as they always are. And she saw her daughter's faces not as they always were, or as other people's were. And she was quiet and aloof and watchful, not to startle the strangeness away. She had never taught them to be kind to her. Hmm. So it's just, you know, super kind of lyrical writing yeah. like that. I like that part where it said uh, she wants to, she wanted to be like, so I think it was something like as comforting as daylight, but also as unremarked. Yeah. You know, just always there. Yeah. But that's kind of, there, there's a lot of kind of nested sort of metaphors in, in this, in the writing. And that's why it forces you to kind of slow down. But, um. So now that I've kind of read some stuff just out of nowhere, I guess I have to talk about the plot too. Um, the story, it takes place in a town called Fingerbone, 
strange name uh, in, mm. in Idaho. Fingerbone, Idaho. Yeah. <laughs> Is that a real place? I guess. Uh, no, it's it's based on where she grew up, but it's not. It's just a different name. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, it's in it's in this this place in Idaho. And well, like the tasks of raising these two girls, Ruth and Lucille, change hands a few times. The bulk the bulk of the novel really deals with their aunt Sylvie, who is really just not cut out for the job at all. Like she's super wrapped up in her own world. Um, probably, you know, is dealing with some sort of mental health issues. And, you know, up to that point, she had been living as sort of like a transient kind of hopping trains and just doing her own thing. Mm -hmm. And this sort of life kind of starts rubbing off on the kids. Like they start skipping school, the, the house is a crazy mess and all these other alarming stuff kind of becomes normal. And the story really comes to a head when one sister decides to form her own path and while the other sticks with the aunt. And that's kind of where that's, it's not so much a story about that plot there, but it's more about just diving into these characters. Mm -hmm. So I just want to read a a really quick section about the, uh, about their aunt Sylvie kind of gives you just a little idea of who she is. I liked this part too. Sylvie had no awareness of time. For her, hours and minutes were the names of trains. We were waiting for the 9.52. Sylvie seemed neither patient nor impatient, just as she seemed neither comfortable nor uncomfortable. She was merely quiet unless she sang, and still unless she pulled us outward from the bridge. I hated waiting. If I had one particular complaint, it was that my life seemed composed entirely of expectation. I expected an arrival, an explanation, an apology. There had never been one, a fact I I could have accepted were it not true that, just when I had got used to the limits and dimensions of one moment, I was expelled into the next and made to wonder again if any shapes hid in its shadows. That most moments were substantially the same did not detract at all from the possibility that the next moment might be utterly different. And so the ordinary demanded unblinking attention. Any tedious hour might be the last of its kind. So I guess that was a little bit less about the aunt and more of kind of the narration, (laughs) but uh, I like that part anyways. Had a bookmark in there. Why do you think that this book, it kind of like, to me, it sounds like the book could be called like parenting or child rearing or something like that, but it's called housekeeping. (laughs) Why do you think? Well, it's called, um, there is a part in that and I meant to kind of mark down where it was because it's like, Oh, they said the title of the book. Like it's you mm-hmm. know one of those moments touched upon, but like uh, I think they call it housekeeping because the way that their aunt runs the house is so different than what they kind of are used to, and the house kind of you know falls apart, and they don't keep up with whatever you know keeping up with appearances and all that stuff, and um, that's kind of where it comes from. But it's also you know the metaphor of them, you know, having that missing that housekeeping in their, in their lives as well. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this book was pretty sad, but, um, in parts it was also pretty funny and like the, the incompetence and the sort of unhinged behavior of the aunt was, was pretty funny until it became, and then there are random spots where Robinson just kind of throws in some goofy description 
uh, like this one, which I wanted to talk about, which is it's about how school lunches sucked when you didn't know where to sit or didn't, you know, make friends yet. Okay. Lunches were terrible. I could scarcely swallow. It seemed as if I were trying to eat a peanut butter sandwich while hanging by the neck. <laughs> I like that one. Um, yeah. Because that is kind of what <laughs> it's a good, uh, good description there. So yeah, I definitely recommend this book. It was it was really good. And uh, so now I want to just go to my one-star review. And when I was looking at reviews for this, it seems like this is a huge uh, book club book. And okay. a lot of the bad reviews seem to mention that. Like, I hate my book club for making me read this. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Stuff like> that. <laughs> so user Anjanette said, if books are like people, this is that annoying person in your life who drones on and on about uninteresting topics, but who you feel obligated to listen to for whatever reason. Think of that meeting you have to sit through, or that lecture you have to go to, but isn't really part of your degree. Or math. That's this book. Big old yawn. But everyone says it's so awesome and gives it awards and calls it classic and a must-read. Whatevs. At least it only wasted five hours of my life. <laughs> Wow. That's always seems yeah. to be like the criticism of like when people get brought to a major literary work and then like the one thing is just like, it's not great. Like, why do you <laughs> say it's great? You know, like whatever. Yeah. Show me your credentials. Whoever gave me the, whoever handed out that award. Right. And then it's about always about their time. Give me my time back. <laughs> well, it's quite an investment as we know. <laughs> cool. Good one. Housekeeping. That's good. Yeah. All right. Uh, so I guess it's my turn now. I will be doing, um, well, I guess there's kind of like a, there's like a roundabout way to like coming to how I decided to cover this book this week and, and, um, and kind of, it goes along with my own interests, but also like, again, one of those literary classics that's sitting on the shelf and it's just like i know that's going to be a classic so when i read it you know what is going to be my reaction to it um okay but i'll start out with a mark style question and it, and, it, and <laughs> as soon as i ask this question you're probably going to know which book i'm covering but what has been your interaction in life especially in recent years um what has been your interaction with the true crime genre Hmm. In any form. I know, you know, I kind of have avoided this whole swing of true crime stuff. I know it's like the biggest thing going. Mm. I know that Serial uh, is the podcast standard, apparently. Mm. <laughs> like, I know that Law and & Order and CSI have been like the biggest shows <laughs> forever. Right. And people are just obsessed with true crime stuff. And I would say uh, I've read. No. Okay. The, the, the last thing I liked that was true crime was not a book. It was a movie. And it was that Dear Zachary movie that you told me about that was the saddest right. fucking thing in the world. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Dear Zachary is super sad. Yeah. I mean, that's like the thing. That's what I think engages people's. Like, the, you can go, like, kind of two directions, I think. You've gone the direction of, like, you know, 
not really engaging with it. And then there's people who really like go deeply down the rabbit hole where it's like, you know, true crime becomes your life. And, you know, I think that that's, that's probably a, an early kind of uh, internet discovery that people go through where it like, I remember, you know, nights in high school being like, Oh, you can like, since there's the internet, you can go on Wikipedia and just read about murderers and stuff like that. And then people just like do that. And then it becomes like a thing. I mean, I can say too, I mean, I've mentioned on the podcast before that like our format for this podcast is somewhat lifted from one of the most popular podcasts of all time, which is my favorite murderer, which is, you know, two people talking about murders every week and stuff like that. So, um, take a guess. I guess. Yeah. Take a guess at what book I'm covering. Is it in cold blood? It sure is. Yes, it sure is. So in cold blood is one of those bookshelf books where it's like, I, is this on your shelf? Have you read it? Yes. You've read it. I, no, I have started. I have started this and okay. then got distracted. Yeah, okay. So I've actually done that too. And there was <laughs> there was some there was a part of me that I think was waiting until I was ready for it in a way because I think I did start it once and then I was like, I don't really know what the hype is and then I got distracted and whatever. Um, but I'll say this time that I went fully in. So I read the nice. book cover to cover and it, and it definitely absorbed me in the way that I'm, I'm glad that it hit me at the right time. But so in cold blood is kind of a combination of this true crime, uh, curiosity along with also being a literary classic. So I'll go into kind of the history of the book a little bit and its author Truman Capote. Uh, I don't want to like, I'll try to concentrate on the book more than his life because there's a lot to kind of go through for his life and actually a lot to go through after this book is kind of published. I would say in a weird way, um, you know, he's famous for a few different works of his, including the novella Breakfast at Tiffany's, which, of course, is a famous, like an extremely famous movie mm-hmm. in Cold Blood. Uh, there's movies of it, but also there's the movie with Philip Seymour Hoffman called Capote, which comes out, I think, yeah, after he dies because he died in 1984 at age 59. Um, but an interesting thing about Capote is that and something that I didn't know is that he never really completes any major works after In Cold Blood. So In Cold Blood was originally published as four different segments in the New Yorker magazine. I double-checked this because for a second I thought that maybe he knew your last author, William Maxwell, but he actually dedicates the book to a different New Yorker editor also named William. But it was like William Shaw or something like that. I had to double check. As soon as you were talking about it, like I was like, holy shit, is that the same guy? Um, But no, he is William Sean of the New Yorker was an editor who allowed him to do the coverage of In Cold Blood. Um, And I'll get into the plot of it in a second. Um, But what's also interesting about Capote is that he doesn't do the formal education route. He his his largest formal education his family moved around a lot and his largest formal education was high school and then he started as a copy boy in the art department for the new yorker and then kind of went on from there uh capote is sort of an interesting guy i feel like i read what i read in and what he expressed in in cold blood and in his writing i feel is almost opposite of the research that i eventually did uh for the book because um 
by all out external accounts, he was like a very sort of boisterous and flamboyant person. He was um, a closeted homosexual for most of his life, but also had like an ongoing and open relationship with a male counterpart um, famously for like kind of the rest of his life. And after In Cold Blood gets published, he kind of becomes like a scene guy where it's like he's basically just a socialite who kind of <laughs> went down from there. He he was, you know, obviously like a really famous author. This book hits the seat and it's like there's over three million copies sold. And in some ways it kind of starts the American obsession with true crime. Like a lot of people say that this was an originator of the so-called nonfiction novel where basically this story, this is a nonfiction book, but it's written in a novel format. So like the characters are characters. It's not, you know, it includes real police reports and real evidence and real stories about a murder uh, and stuff like that. But it's written like a novel, like it okay. reads, you know, like the characters, you know, first and last name and all stuff like that. Um, but actually I was fascinated to find out, like a lot of people said that this was the first nonfiction novel, but then of course, when you go back into literary history, it's like, well, he popularized a nonfiction novel, but the first one was actually <laughs> Operation Massacre by Argentine journalist Rodolfo Walsh in 1957, yeah. you know, things like that always happen. But Capote was the one who really, um, popularized this nonfiction novel writing, and um, yeah, after In Cold Blood gets published, he basically just becomes like a famous author that goes, he made like TV appearances on Johnny Carson throughout the 70s and stuff like that. And he kind of just becomes like a boozer and a drug guy until he eventually just like dies in Los Angeles of liver disease um, after unsuccessfully publishing like one or two chapters of some other works. So In Cold Blood is definitely his most major work. Um, but that's not to say that it isn't a major work. I mean, it's really quite incredible. So like I said, um, now I'll get into the, the plot of the novel, but basically what Capote did, and I find this kind of from a, from a journalistic standpoint, really fascinating. You know how I talked about, um, uh, what was that other journalist that I covered? Joan, Joan. That was the one where his like, oh, Joan Didion. Yeah, Joan Didion. He has like a there's an element of of Didion in him as well, where basically the premise for In Cold Blood is that he saw an article in the New York Times about these brutal murders. So there was a family called the Clutters. Their last name was Clutter, C-L-U-T-T-E-R. And they are Kansas ranchers, you know, relatively well off. They like have like a big ranch, but they have, you know, two older daughters who weren't in the house at the time and then a family of four. So there's Mr. and Mrs. Herb Clutter, uh, their daughter, Nancy, and their son, Kenyon. And basically someone, someone or some ones go into their house one night and just kill all of them. So it's like one of those things where it came out in the New York Times and it was like, oh my God, brutal murder, like blah, blah, blah. I think cynical people and maybe rightfully so would say, you know, something like this is publicized because it was like a happy white suburban family that all gets like slayed. And I think that there's something about the true crime genre that's also guilty of that, you know, like, oh, like a picture perfect family gets killed. Well, 
dozens yeah. of you know you know impoverished people get killed every day but no one cares um but you know such is the the genre of true crime so it, that it's in its roots but the interesting thing that i found in researching the book is that uh capote spends six years in the town of Holcomb. so he's like this guy who kind of grew up around like new york city and uh he was also briefly in greenwich connecticut for a little while and you know kind of like an east coast guy and he kind of ingrains himself in this community and he actually goes there before the murderers who are named uh uh richard eugene hickok and perry smith um you know that those two people are the murderers from the very beginning because he makes sort of like a triple parallel action narrative of the family, the murderers and the investigators, like throughout the novel, you know, who did it from the beginning. Um, Mm -hmm. I would say the biggest mystery as a reader while you're reading this book is why they did it. And I think that that's also part of the philosophy of the novel is kind of examining this new sort of phenomenon of, you know, this is at the time when the term serial killer is being developed, like in that there's a series on Netflix right now called Mindhunter, which is about the FBI kind of coining that term serial killer. And also, mm-hmm. um, you know, so so Capote ingrains himself in this community before they're even caught. Like he goes there and starts asking questions <laughs> and things like that, which is sort of interesting. And then he just spends the next six years amassing allegedly 8,000 pages of notes and manuscripts and interviews with people, even to the point where he, he kind of like was one of the only journalists allowed to um, interview and interact with uh, Richard and Perry as they await their death sentence on death row. So it's kind of one of those like inch, like this is the juiciest of true crime, like all access because he really put his whole life into it. Another thing that's really fascinating that no one mentions about this book until you actually research it. And it's certainly not in the text of the book either. But um, Capote was very good lifelong childhood friends with fellow author Harper Lee, also known as the author of To Kill a Mockingbird. And she went and helped him with this book the entire time. <laughs> six years. So, six, yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know if she was there entirely as long as he did or why he would, you know, not really claim her as, like, actually, if you think about it when you research it, it's kind of fucked up that he doesn't do, like, any sort of mention. Maybe she's in, like, the, I need to reread the acknowledgments now because. Uh, That's, yeah, yeah even I've, never, in, I've never heard that. Yeah, even in the acknowledgments, I don't even think he says anything about Harper, which is like sort of fucked up. But yeah, she, he was there the whole time. And apparently the formula behind their relationship when they were researching this book is that Harper would befriend the wives and Truman would and he would befriend like the guys and then they would meet in the middle. And that's how they got some of their most exclusive interviews, um, sure. which is pretty amazing. It's also, I think, worth noting either as a coincidence or maybe not as a coincidence because they were childhood friends growing up that um you know harper lee famously writes this one novel that's like the tome of her success and in some ways in cold blood is very much like that i mean he had some other success stories with some of his shorts and novellas but it's sort of interesting that both of these people who had somewhat overlapping lives also published like their one masterpiece and i wonder i wonder if that was glossed over in the movie as well is that movie about like 
Capote. About his research. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it actually is, and I have not seen that movie, but obviously I have to now. Like, I absolutely have to. Like, probably going to watch it pretty soon. Um, but yeah, I don't know. If if there's no Harper Lee represented in the Capote movie either, that's kind of effed up because that was something just so fascinating to me, and, and it's literally like a footnote for all the goings-on <laughs> of my research here, and I was like, what? Harper Lee was there? That's really intense. Um Obviously, with any book that is even touching upon this genre, there's going to be controversies. Read the accuracy of the novel. There's been plenty of critics being like, that scene was invented or this scene was invented. And I think it's actually down kind of to every, it's almost like every reader's duty to kind of decide if the flair that Capote brings to the narrative, you know, making the narrative points hit harder. Because I would say the the thing that I would compare... I mean, I, gut my, my gut is basically that because of the because this book is such a classic of of true crime, you know, literature and and the nonfiction novel that despite the idea that it's been picked apart, I think that what the connecting scenes and narratives that he makes, which you can sometimes tell like which ones they are, I think that it all makes sense because when the next clearly nonfiction thing happens like like the beginning of the book like the first 20 pages i was sort of like okay like i'm reading about this but like can this stuff about this family be true and everything like that but then when you read it gets to actual police testimonies of like what the people that he's describing like oh yeah her boyfriend gave this statement like after the fact and you're like oh yeah like that is kind of like that makes sense that definitely mm-hmm. makes sense. And I would say I actually wrote a note in my book that um, I would say that the the not the person that I would think if this was a fictional story, I would think it's most like Stephen King. And that he may have read this book and been very influenced by it because the beginning of the book has a few of those chapter endings Um you know, leading up to the murder of the Clutter family, there's a few of those chapter endings where it's like, and that was his last day on the ranch (laughs) kind of thing. Like the total classic, like Stephen King thing. So, um, but I think also, you know, it's, it was interesting to me to research the controversies about In Cold Blood because, um, you know, like you, you mentioned the, the, the podcast serial before, or there's obviously like all these famous true crime documentaries, like the staircase or, uh, making a, making a murder and stuff like that. And it was interesting to me that from the very beginning of the true crime genre, they all have like the same things in common where like in cold blood was so the novel itself and the coverage of it was so ingrained with the actual case. It's kind of like that scientific theory of, you know, like when you observe something, it inherently changes it. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard that? How there's like a quantum like scientific theory that it's actually like if you observe something, it changes the outcome. So obviously yeah, I've heard that it's like driven by the attention that it receives. Right. So this is like the same thing where there are people who, you know, there's ever there's so many different sides of the case and in invariably when you write a very good novel that people are really addicted to they know more about the case than they should there was a lot of stuff like in the courthouse and in like the court cases and the subsequent appeals and stuff like that where it's like you know you become famous and then it has an effect on the trial itself 
basically, mm-hmm. you know? So, and there, and I, but in also in a sense, and this is something that is sort of a, I'm kind of on the side of criticism of the true crime genre of that it glorifies and fantasizes and romanticizes about murder and murderers, like probably a bit too much. Um, I would say, you know, in cold blood is definitely guilty of that. Like one of the characters, Perry, who is the person who actually killed all of them, you like Capote wrote sympathetic things about him, but more than any other true crime thing that I've, um, encountered or you know media that i've consumed this book was more about the victims than some of the other things out there like there's a lot of podcasts out there that are only you know fetishizing yeah only concerned yeah yeah um so the victims here and the and the town surrounding them they are just as much a part of this book as the as the actual killers okay how how many times would you say like that the murder itself was like replayed in the in that book though? That's oh, it only about. is it like the, the oh, murder only happens. The, the murder only happens once. I mean, obviously the things surrounding it, but there's also a whole story that Capote brings together because because the narrative is such that he weaves it together from the beginning that you know who the killers are. That there's a whole thing of like they killed them and then they like went down to Mexico and then they like went to all these different states and all the evidence and all the evidence that the detectives bring together. You like kind of witness it in real time and then it's like, oh, yeah, they brought that radio that they stole from the house. And it's also an examination of what everyone is trying to examine in true crime is that it's really hard to it's almost impossible to assume the mind of a killer because Uh, The original intention of the murderers of the Clutter family was because they heard from a fellow inmate that they would be rich. Like they were like, yeah, there's these people out there. I work for them in Kansas and like the Clutter Ranch definitely has, he's definitely got a safe with thousands of dollars. And that's the assumption that they go on. And when they find that there's no money in the house, they just kind of flip a switch and just start killing them. Even though there's (laughs) no, there's no financial sort of gain to be had. So it's also a an investigation into that kind of like thing. Another thing that really fascinated me about the very end of this book, which I just got to today is um, because I've also been watching the Netflix, the David Fincher Netflix series, Mindhunter, which is also concerned with like a, like the true crime genre. And sometimes I felt like, Oh, it's weird. Like one of the things that I thought was weird about Mindhunter is like they go into like famous serial killer after famous serial killer. Like, you know, it's almost fetishistic and like, oh, like how are these guys all grouped together? But I think a weird thing that actually came to me at the end of In, of In Cold Blood is that these famous killers actually do kind of like because you have to gather them together in one place. The murders of the Clutter family, uh, Dick and Perry, they eventually do live out the rest of their lives in a death row cell with other major famous murderers. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's like it is it is actually a factor in, you know, the lifestyle of these terrible people that they end up in a place that sort of congregates these other terrible people. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, basically just in cold blood. It's a wild ride. It's an addictive summer read. That's why it is, you know, it is what it is. It's an originator of the of the of the true crime genre, but also a book of its own. And, you know, what else can I say other than 
we've talked before, Mark, about how like it's somewhat annoying that the podcast kind of affects the way that you read things or what you choose to read. So I was a little bit wary of choosing this book because it is 384 pages in my edition. But I breezed Ooh. through a 384 page book in one week. Because it was that re- it was that readable, so that says something in itself. And it's also, I think that I could definitely get into the genre of the nonfiction novel because when you hit those plot points of what you know is obviously nonfiction, like what is true, it's a particular type of exhilaration that goes beyond, um, you know, reading a book about a fictional murder or a fictional crime. Um, because there's that real impact of like, okay, this is like, this is the statement of the, you know, the boyfriend who they had to like suspect because he lives like a mile down the road and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, Capote's just a good writer and he did a really good job of taking those 8,000 notes and making it into a narrative that was like really addicting. Are the, are, do you, I wonder if all those notes are on display somewhere. Oh yeah. Maybe there's like a museum of it or something. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Um, but yeah, lots That's, of detractors yeah. to the book, but I think overall really cool. And I think <laughs> that you can, even though, you know, there are some people out, like I said, it's every reader's duty to kind of decide if they want 100% the truth, then they should probably only read the police reports because the Capote book does have a narrative that he weaves together. Yeah. So I will close out my one-star review for, uh, with Rachel from Goodreads. She says, I despise this book. I absolutely loathe Truman Capote for putting me in the skin of two cold-blooded malicious murderers. How dare he make me feel such empathy and loathing all mixed up. The worst thing I've ever read, period. <laughs> so I don't know, Rachel, if you're, you know, for Rachel, it's a condemnation, but for me... It, and other fans of the true crime genre, it may be a compliment to say, how dare he make me feel such empathy and loathing all at the same time. And that's definitely how you feel, not only about the murderers, but just about the people in the town, too. Obviously, they get very affected by this small community. Uh, four people get murdered all at once. And it's just like sort of really it's fascinating for those who can stomach the true crime genre. Uh, so. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This has been Shitty Book Reports. You can find us every Sunday on Spotify, SoundCloud, Instagram, and Twitter at SBR the Podcast. You can also email us at sbrthepodcast at gmail.com. Give us comments, suggestions, corrections, whatever you're feeling, and we'll see you next time. Later.